1: Welcome to Washington Today from Monday, February 27th, 2023. I'm Gary Sterkoff. Thanks a lot for joining us today. We're at the start of a busy week here in Washington. Congress is back after their President's Day recess. The House gaveling in at 5 p.m. Eastern time on the agenda. A resolution expressing condolences for Turkey and Syria earthquake victims and commending U.S. and international relief efforts. In the Senate, work on the nomination of Jamar Walker to be a U.S. District Court or U.S. District Judge for Eastern Virginia. And tomorrow, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments on President Biden's loan forgiveness plan. The cases, Biden v. Nebraska, and the U.S. Department of Education v. Brown, are set to start at 10 a.m. Eastern time. At issue, whether the administration is overstepping its authority by relieving student loan debt. We'll get more about the week ahead from Associated Press congressional reporter Farnoosh Amiri. According to a report by NBC News, the Energy Department has concluded that, uh, quote, with, quote, low confidence that the COVID-19 pandemic likely originated from a lab leak in Wuhan, China. The news was first reported on Sunday by The Wall Street Journal. The NBC report says key lawmakers on both House and Senate intelligence committees were briefed On the report by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence last month, we'll have congressional reaction to this report coming up. We begin on Capitol Hill with more on the week ahead. On Tuesday morning, the House Foreign Affairs Committee holds a hearing on countering the Chinese Communist Party. And the House Armed Services Committee will hear from Defense Department officials regarding management of U.S. military support to Ukraine. Then on Wednesday, Attorney General Merrick Garland testifies before the Senate Judiciary Committee on oversight of the Justice Department. We'll have full coverage of those hearings across the C-SPAN networks, also at C-SPAN.org, and on the C-SPAN Now video app. In the Senate today, work continues on the nomination of Jamar Walker to be U.S. District Court Judge for Eastern Virginia. If confirmed, he would be the state's first openly gay federal judge. In his Leader Time remarks, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell talked about one topic that Congress is set to uh, uh, explore this week, the Ohio train derailment.
2: Now, on another matter, the attention and prayers of the entire nation have been fixed for the the past several weeks on the town of East Palestine and the surrounding area in Northeast Ohio. The derailment of the Norfolk Southern train led to a disastrous chemical release, forcing many from their homes and leaving the community vulnerable. The people of East Palestine are understandably anxious and upset, and of course they deserve answers. Our colleague, the junior Center from Ohio, has been all over this issue. We will continue to work with him to ensure the people of Ohio are appropriately informed and supported in the months to come. We also thank Ohio Governor Mike DeWine for his leadership on the ground. Unfortunately, this leadership has cut a sharp contrast with the Biden administration's Secretary of Transportation, even amidst a catalog of crises on his watch. From this and other recent train derailments to the meltdown in air travel back during the holiday season, Secretary Buttigieg has seemed more interested in pursuing press coverage for woke initiatives and climate nonsense than in attending to basic elements of his day job. Understandably, there were some initial concerns in my home state of Kentucky about possible impacts since we are downriver. But the good news is that even after careful monitoring by local experts, there's no reason to believe Kentuckians have anything to worry about. Local water authorities are monitoring the Ohio River's downstream water quality very closely. And thus far, they've seen no cause for alarm whatsoever. Every indication is that the situation for Kentuckians is 100 percent normal. Even so, my staff and I remain in close communication with all of the relevant utilities and local authorities.
1: Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, part of his Leader Time remarks, the the Ohio train derailment was also on the mind of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer.
3: Over the past few weeks, there's been no shortage of opportunists racing to blame the administration for the train derailment. Former President Trump himself showed up in East Palestine and blamed everyone but himself for the tragic accident. But President Trump, as usual, omits a crucial truth. The Trump administration spent years working to loosen safety regulations intended to make these types of accidents less likely. They're in the behest of the big rail companies. When President Trump entered office, rail companies spent millions pushing for repeals on all sorts of safety regulations, from inspection requirements, mandates for newer brakes, and rules governing the number of employees required to operate a train. In one instance, the Trump administration repealed requirements for an electronic braking system because, according to them, the safety benefits were simply not worth the costs. Let me say that again. In 2017, the Trump administration decided to repeal requirements for brake upgrades because they didn't think the safety benefits were worth the cost. I think the people of East Palestine now know that that analysis was wrong and that they're suffering the consequences of rail companies putting profits over people. Now, I want to be clear. A full investigation is still needed to determine which, if any, safety regulations might have prevented the accident in East Palestine. But you don't need to be an expert to see that when companies prioritize profits over safety, when they loosen safety rules, lay off thousands of workers, and spend more money on stock buybacks than in preventing accidents, you're flirting with disaster. It is so typical of Donald Trump. He does the bidding of corporate special interests, and it leads to serious harm to the American people. And when he gets caught, he turns around and blames someone else. It just doesn't wash, and the American people see through it. Disasters like the one in East Palestine are precisely what can happen when safety takes a backseat to maximizing profits and when self-aggrandizing politicians like Donald Trump allow and encourage it to happen. Now, I particularly want to thank my colleagues from Ohio and Pennsylvania for being vigilant in responding to this disaster and working in a bipartisan way to solve it. I also, of course, want to thank all the first responders at every level of government for working without rest to keep people safe.
1: Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, part of his leader time remarks earlier on the floor. And as we said, we'll hear more about what to expect uh, from Congress on the Ohio train derailment this week in just a few minutes. Meanwhile, Senate Homeland Security Ranking Member Rand Paul of Kentucky is calling for the Biden administration to declassify documents on an Energy Department report that found COVID-19 leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. The report reached that conclusion with, quote, low confidence. But Senator Paul tweeting today, quote, classified documents leaked. They should be declassified, showing scientists at DOE believe COVID leaked from Wuhan lab." The reaction comes following a Wall Street Journal report on Sunday that the Energy Department made its conclusion based on new intelligence. And it matches the FBI's conclusion from a 2021 analysis that the pandemic originated from a lab leak. But the U.S. intelligence community is still split on the lab leak theory. Four other federal agencies believe that the virus likely jumped from humans uh, to humans from an animal host outside a lab. Those findings were also reportedly made with low confidence. And here's former Trump administration director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, speaking on the DOE report.
4: Well, I'm not surprised. In fact, I predicted that there would be a shift uh, among all of the intelligence agencies because, you know, Dana, frankly, um, the idea that the uh, COVID-19 Uh, virus was of natural origins has always been at odds with our intelligence. I mean, from my first day as the as the director and looking at that, uh, that was very clear. And I think what you've seen is, uh, you know, uh, back in April of 2020, uh, the intelligence communities unanimously agreed with the scientific community that this was of natural origins. It has now shifted. uh, And you see more and more agencies um, uh, coming to the a conclusion with uh, some degree of confidence in their assessment that uh, that this was the result of a lab leak. And I think over time, Dana, uh, what you're going to find is that the entire intelligence community will reach that assessment uh, because our intelligence very clearly supports that assessment.
5: But But if the Department of Energy is saying this, w- would they not know?
4: Well... It, uh, what I didn't understand about uh, Jake Sullivan's comments is the the Department of Energy has been involved, like other their intelligence components have been involved with this from the beginning. And um, it, you know, not to get too technical on this bill, but from the beginning, uh, it has been clear that scientists have not been able to explain why there's something called a furin cleavage site within the genetic makeup of the COVID-19 virus, and and that's why you had these scientists privately in emails conceding, I don't know how this occurs in nature. Um, that is something that happens when uh, scientists insert a snippet of genetic material uh, into manipulated viruses. And so from the beginning, there has never been an environmental source for COVID-19. There has never been an intermediary host um, identified. And why that's important for, for, your, for your viewers is with the original SARS virus and with the, original, with the, uh, with the MERS uh, virus, Those intermediary hosts were found within a matter of months. We're now three and a half years uh, from the origins of COVID-19, and no intermediary host, nothing tying this to the natural world has been found, which is why you see all of these scientists and now intelligence agencies backing away from prior assessments, backing away from the idea that there was possibility of natural origin, and moving to the assessment that this was the result of a lab leak.
1: Former Trump administration director of national intelligence John Ratcliffe speaking on Fox News. The report was also a topic at today's White House briefing. Here's National Security Council spokesman John Kirby.
6: John, on the um, Department of Energy's findings, the lab leak most likely caused the pandemic. How should Americans respond? How should Americans understand China's response here? Um, saying that this is politically motivated, it's a lie, there's no science to back it, and swatting down this information?
7: Well, I can't speak for the Chinese, and I wouldn't uh, endeavor to to do that. Um, But just let me back up a little bit. The President made uh, trying to find the origins of COVID a priority right when he came into office, and he's got a whole-of-government effort designed to do that. Uh, There is not a consensus right now in the US government about exactly how COVID started. Uh, there is just not an intelligence community consensus. And I would add that one of the things the president did was he he's the one who tasked the national labs, which report up through the Department of Energy, to study this as well. So it wasn't just an effort that was confined to the intelligence community. That work is still ongoing. The president believes it's really important that we continue that work and that we find out as best we can how it started so that we can better prevent a future pandemic. I mean, that's the the idea here is to get ahead of it so that you know, should there be another one or should there even be the signs of another one, we can better get ahead of it.
6: China though is is pretty clearly accusing the Biden administration of smearing them and, and trying to say that this is baseless People shouldn't believe it, and it's a politically motivated attack.
7: I'm not going to get ahead of, uh, of where we are in the process, Jackie. We, the, the intelligence community and the rest of the government is still looking at this. Um, it, it, there's not been a definitive conclusion, so it's difficult for me to say, nor should I feel like I should have to defend uh, press reporting uh, about a possible preliminary indication here. What the president wants is facts. He wants the whole government designed to go get those facts. And, and that's what we're doing. And we're just not there yet. And when we're there yet, and if we have something that is is um, is ready to, to be briefed to the American people and the Congress, then we're gonna do that.
6: How will the president respond to China, though, if, if it's determined that they lied about all this, and now we're trying to paint the administration as uh, in, yeah. in, in such a negative light? How, how will he respond to
7: to G and and um well let's not get ahead of where we are in the process right now We, we there is not a consensus on what caused COVID to start the president wants to understand that so we can prevent better future pandemics he's made that a priority and I just don't we don't have an answer to speak to and I certainly so given that we don't have a consensus it would be foolish for me to get out ahead of speculation on hypothetical situations to come we just aren't there yet
1: National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. And as we heard, the Chinese Foreign Ministry is dismissing this new report. Spokesperson Mao Ning said, quote, Certain parties should stop rehashing the lab leak narrative, stop smearing China, and stop politicizing origins tracing. Here's more with John Kirby. Follow on the lab leak
6: theory. Back in... October 2021, it was also the case that there was no consensus from the intelligence community, um, you know, where COVID came from. Without revealing sensitive information, has
7: the IC gathered new information, new intelligence since then that might have led DOE to draw a different conclusion? We, we again, without confirming the press reporting on the Department of Energy's work here um and the context for them is that they run the national labs and the president wanted the national labs involved there again a whole of government effort um the work is still ongoing there hasn't been a final conclusion uh, arrived at here and not everyone in the intelligence community or across the government necessarily has come to a, a consensus view here uh, on how it started but i want to go back to what i said before and that's that um that uh we the president believes it's important to know so that we can better prevent future pandemics. And obviously, regardless of what um, what the source is, uh, it's important for people to know that, that scientific research can still occur, needs to occur, uh, in a safe and secure manner.
1: National Security Council spokesman John Kirby at today's White House briefing. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments for two cases tomorrow that challenge President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. The cases Biden v. Nebraska and U.S. Department of Education v. Brown. And millions of borrowers could see up to $20,000 of their debt canceled depending on how the Supreme Court rules how and when the justices rule will also determine when payments on federal loans will resume. They've been in a pandemic-related pause for nearly three years, but the Biden administration has said that payments will resume 60 days after litigation is resolved or at the end of August, whichever comes first. The oral arguments set to begin at 10 a.m. Eastern time tomorrow morning. You can hear it here on C-SPAN radio and watch it on C-SPAN 3 and at C-SPAN.org. And with more on what to look for this week on Capitol Hill, here's Associated Press congressional reporter Farnu Shamiri.
6: You know, this is the first week after a two-week recess. Obviously, um, you know, House and Senate are catching up on the news of the week, especially, you know, the Ohio train derailment is an area of focus. You know, members of both parties, of both chambers, have pledged to look into it. Um, obviously with different lens and different angles. um, But I think that's one thing we're going to see play out this
8: week. One of your pieces with your colleague, uh, Lisa Mascaro, last week, uh, the headline of that piece said, Border Biden's COVID House GOP casts a wide net in probes in terms of oversight. Uh, what of those hearings, what will we see this week, even though it is a short week in terms of oversight?
6: So, I mean, the the main uh, offering for House Republicans this week is going to be the China Select Committee. Um, obviously, this was something that started in a bipartisan fashion, more than 100 Democrats Voted to create this um, select committee, but we're really gonna see the test of that bipartisanship this week. You know, they're gonna have some former Trump administration officials come and testify, um, some chi- Chinese dissidents come testify, but this is really gonna be the first time we're gonna see Congress address the Chinese spy balloon. And Democrats and Republicans are going to be able to see if they can have a unified message against China.
8: Yeah, it's almost like where do you start to begin with China? Since the two weeks they've been off, you had the Chinese spy balloon a couple of weeks ago. Certainly, the beginning of uh, of, of February. Then the the recent uh, efforts by the Chinese to call for a, a ceasefire in, in Russia certainly the agenda for that that select committee just got a little wider.
6: Yeah, and I think that's going to be a challenge for them. Like, how, how do you focus? You know, China is a large country; it has you know wide geopolitical, um, you know, influence and and reign. And so they're you know going to focus on both domestically. One of the issues that you know you ha- you were showing clips of Mike Gallagher yeah. um, on on Face the Nation and. One of the focus areas is going to be, you know, how China cracks down on U.S. you know people on U.S. soil. They, you know these outposts, these police outposts that they have in cities like New York City. So that you're going to see some of that, but I think we're going to see more of a unified message in the beginning. But it's it's unclear if that'll last.
8: The, you touched on this momentarily in the headline of reflects it here in the Washington Times. Committee launches probe into train derailment response. To the House Oversight and Accountability announced a probe into the administration's handling of that earlier on what are as as they've been off on on the break on the president's day break, what are you picking up from social media et cetera that members are concerned about?
6: I mean you know obviously if it depends on who you're talking to if you're talking about oversight chairman James comer he's really focused as his letter stated on Friday to transportation secretary Pete Buttigieg. He wants to understand when did the department you know when were they notified about it, how did they respond, what was the communication like? And you know, many people, similarly to the Chinese spy balloon, many Republicans believe that that judge and the Biden administration as a whole did not respond as adequately as they could have.
8: Uh, additional hearings this week, including include the Attorney General coming before Congress on uh, Wednesday, uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. What is this? Just one of the regularly scheduled, or is there a specific issue involved?
6: This is one of his regularly scheduled appearances before Congress. He's going to start in the Senate in the Judiciary Committee. But, you know, this is the first time since 2021 that Merrick Garland has been before Congress. And obviously, as we both know, a lot has happened in that time period, specifically the classified document probe that both Democrats and Republicans are, you know, have been itching for a classified briefing on what, you know, the Department of Justice and the FBI found in those documents, both from the Trump administration, uh, both from Trump, both from Biden. And now, you know, we know Pence. So this is gonna, you're gonna see some of that play well, out this that,
8: week. That seems like a long time. So for a, a, why didn't he testify before Congress in 2022?
6: I mean, it's, this is the annual, I mean, every session Merrick Garland comes before or the Attorney General comes before Congress. Um, It just happens that in this period of time, obviously, there have been several investigations that both Republicans and Democrats are looking to that involve the DOJ, that involve the FBI. And now we're going to see some of that play out There's
8: There's also a House Homeland Security Committee hearing this this week. Um, Is uh, is there still consideration of impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary, um,
6: it, it is a very small um, but growing faction of House Republicans specifically and obviously some Senate Republicans that want to impeach Mayorkas. I think if you talk to leadership um, that is something that they're treading carefully on to make sure that if they do go that route there is an investigation that goes through and not just pursuing of impeachment.
8: And that that, uh, home, that meeting of the Homeland Security C- Committee is this week. As you mentioned, too, at the, at the start, this is a, the short week because Democrats have their, their policy conference this week. What's that all about? Who are they expected to, to hear from?
6: So Biden announced that he would be addressing House Democrats Wednesday night, and then he'll go and do the same to Senate Democrats on Thursday. But, you know, this is different than when he came to Philadelphia last year to talk to House Democrats. They had full control of Congress. Yeah. And now— you know, they're they're looking at a divided Congress. They're looking at Republican control in the House. So the message is not going to be the same one of optimism about legislative achievements. It's going to be how do we get back the House in 2024? And obviously, Biden, we're all awaiting for his announcement for a reelection. So I'm sure he's trying to garner support from the In,
8: Congress. in past years, Republicans failed similar sorts of policy conferences. Um, you know, uh, are they planning to do a similar thing this year?
6: Republicans are going to be in Orlando at the end of this, at the end of March. Um, they're looking to, you know, they've they've regained the control of the House. They're looking. In 2024, obviously, it'll be really interesting who the speakers are. They haven't announced anyone yet. Last year, Kevin McCarthy, um, you know, avoided inviting Trump. Instead, went with speakers like Duke Gingrich and Condoleezza Rice. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens. This
8: what can you tell us? We talked about committee hearings. What can you tell us about the uh, agenda this week for the House in particular? What legislation or significant legislation should we be on the lookout for?
6: This week, as you mentioned, because of the House Democratic retreat is, is a, a lighter legislative week. Um, we're going to see some resolutions in support of, you know, aid and, and helping out the communities in Turkey and Syria who have, um, you know, suffered from that devastating earthquake. But um, mostly we're going to see, you know, the select committee on China is going to be their, their biggest offering this week. And we're going to see how that plays out.
1: Associated Press Congressional Reporter Farnoosh Amiri on Washington Journal this morning. You can see the entire segment at cspan.org org forward slash Washington Journal and on our C-SPAN Now video app. And late today, an update from the office of Senator John Fetterman. He's the Pennsylvania Democrat who checked himself into the Walter Reed Medical Center on February 16th for treatment for clinical depression. His communications director, Joe Calvello, Released a statement earlier today, which reads in part, quote, John is doing well working with the wonderful doctors and remains on a path to recovery. He is visiting with staff and family daily and his staff are keeping him updated on Senate business and news. Our team is moving full speed ahead and working tirelessly for the people of Pennsylvania. We appreciate the flood of well wishes. However, as we have said, this will be a weeks long process. And while we will be sure to keep, keep folks updated as it progresses, this is is all there is to give by way of an update. Part of the statement of Joe Calvello, Communications Director for Pennsylvania Democratic Senator John Fetterman. You're listening to Washington Today.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory—
1: Welcome back to Washington Today. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made a surprise visit to Kiev, Ukraine today. She's highlighting the U.S. support just days after the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. We'll hear part of what she had to say coming up in a few minutes. China has accused the United States of, quote, endangering peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait after a Navy jet flew through the area earlier today. Chinese army officials said in a statement, quote, the U.S. side's actions deliberately interfered with and disrupted the regional situation and endangered peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. U.S. Navy officials say the jet was in international airspace. Michigan Democratic Representative Elisa Slotkin has announced she will run for the Senate in 2024. She is the first high-profile candidate to jump into the race. Incumbent Democrat Debbie Stabenow has said she is retiring. We'll hear a portion of Representative Slotkin's announcement coming up. Texas Republican Lance Gooden is doubling down on his attack on California Democrat Judy Chu's heritage, despite receiving bipartisan pushback. In a tweet on Sunday, Representative Gooden pointed to Representative Chu's vote against a resolution creating a select committee to investigate China, saying, quote, "...it's not xenophobic to question where her loyalty lies." His attacks began last week when Representative Gooden suggested that Representative Chu should not receive access to sensitive classified materials because she defended Dominic Ng, who President Biden appointed to lead U.S. trade interests in Asia. Ng has been accused of having ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Judy Chu is the first Chinese-American woman in Congress. She told The Hill that Representative Gooden's comments are, quote, absolutely outrageous and racist. The Supreme Court has announced it will review the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's funding mechanism. Lower courts have split on the issue of whether the CFPB's funding through annual transfers by the Federal Reserve violates the Constitution's Appropriations Clause, which establishes Congress's power of the purse. The CFPB was created after the 2008 financial crisis to enforce consumer financial laws. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made a surprise visit to Ukraine. She appeared in Kyiv on Monday. She's highlighting U.S. support for the country days after the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion.
7: As we mark one year since the beginning of this full-scale invasion, the message I bring you from President Biden is simple. America will, will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes.
1: The Treasury Department is responsible for imposing international sanctions against Russian individuals and entities and overseeing U.S. economic aid to Ukraine. Treasury Department officials said Secretary Yellen was in Kiev to announce the recent transfer of another $1.25 billion in aid to the country. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky posted a video to his Telegram channel showing him welcoming the secretary and thanking her for her support. Last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that Russia was suspending its participation in the New START Treaty. That's the last remaining nuclear arms control agreement between the U.S. and Russia. And earlier today at an event held by the Brookings Institution, Robert Einhorn, who is the former State Department Special Advisor for Nonproliferation Arms Control, along with Mallory Stewart, who is currently Assistant Secretary of State in charge of arms control, talked about what the U.S. could expect following President Putin's announcement.
3: To my knowledge, they've, they haven't said anything about all of the notifications, the data exchanges, all of that, uh, which gives us, uh, give us a, a much clearer understanding of uh, uh, Russian strategic uh, activities. Um, you mentioned that we have approached the Russians uh, to try to get answers. Have we gotten any clarification? What's your, uh, your assessment of the activities that uh, they're gonna suspend?
9: So aside from the information that you just recounted, we haven't received any formal notifications um, uh, with respect to the treaty that suspends um, additional notifications, right? So we're following, as you are, what um, the Russian government has said uh, through its you know, speeches and communications beyond the formal treaty notification process. Um, The suspension hasn't been officially affected yet, in the sense that we're still receiving notifications as recently as today under the treaty, regular notifications. But we expect that as soon as that suspension has been formalized, that those will stop, um, pursuant to what we've heard um, from our Russian colleagues. So we're trying to follow up with them to truly understand what else could be included um, in the suspension and what could be continued. Um, But right now, we expect it will just be the launch notifications under that 1988 agreement Mm -hmm. um, and that they said they will abide by the actual numerical limitations. Um,
3: Um, uh, Whatever they're prepared to do, Mm -hmm. uh, is the Biden administration prepared to continue uh, providing the um, New START mandated notifications regardless Mm -hmm. uh, of what the Russians do?
9: Yeah. We're looking at the available options right now. I think it really will depend how this um, suspension is affected, how it moves forward, uh, what the reasons that they actually formally provide us for it, and what they end up providing in terms of information. I think, you know, we're not sure. Right now it's very much an open question since we haven't seen their formal notification. Uh, So we need to figure out what we're going to be able to do once we understand what they're intending to do.
1: That's Mallory Stewart, Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control, speaking at the Brookings Institution earlier today and reaction today from the comments made by CIA Director William Burns. He told CBS's Face the Nation that the U.S. quote, is, quote, confident that China is considering providing Russia with lethal equipment for its war against Ukraine. Here's State Department spokesman Ned Price.
10: On military support from Beijing for for Russia's war against Ukraine, the Secretary said on Friday that it could make a material difference on the battlefield. Do you have any more on that assessment? What kind of impact would that have on the conflict? And is there a possibility that that kind of lethal aid coming from Beijing could severely undercut the sanctions strategy, maybe rendering it ineffective
11: altogether? Well, a couple things. Uh, One, the strategic course of this war has been set from the earliest moments of President Putin's invasion. Uh, This has been a strategic failure from the earliest days when President Putin sent his forces across the border in an effort uh, to topple the Ukrainian government, to subjugate the Ukrainian people, to erase uh, Ukraine's identity, and to deny its democracy and its freedom. Of course, uh, that has failed. It will continue to fail, uh, and we don't envision anything changing. uh, That. Uh, strategic outcome for Ukraine or for Russia, uh, for that matter. Nevertheless, if a country like the PRC were to provide lethal assistance to uh, Russia for use in Ukraine, it would obviously have dire consequences for the people of Ukraine. Uh, We've seen the impact that the provision of UAV produced – excuse me, Iranian-produced UAVs uh, has had uh, in Ukraine, the way in which these drones have targeted uh, civilian – sites have targeted uh, energy transformers, energy uh, production facilities as well, uh, the way in which President Putin has sought to enlist them in his effort to weaponize winter uh, against the people of Ukraine. Uh, Now, of course, the PRC has at its disposal uh, technology and resources that Iran doesn't have, and so one could imagine uh, the implications of the provision of significant amounts of, of lethal assistance. It's for that reason that we don't want to See it happen. Uh, we're continuing to warn very clearly uh, about the consequences that would befall Beijing should it proceed down this path. Ultimately, Beijing is going to have to make its own sovereign decision. Uh, our goal is to see to it that Beijing makes informed decisions. These decisions need to be informed by very clear and direct warnings from senior U.S. officials, including Secretary Blinken, when he met with Wang Yi in Munich uh, that there would be costs and there would be consequences if uh, the PRC were to uh, go down this route. Uh, to your second question about sanctions evasion, this is something that uh, we are always taking a close look at – sanctions and sanctions enforcement. It's in iterative uh, element. It's an iterative uh, activity in which we engage. Uh, We are constantly looking at our sanctions, we are regularly rolling out new sanctions in response to information that becomes available to us as we see trend lines, uh, as we see uh, the actions of entities and actors around the world. Uh, In fact, you saw a number of those, uh, to put it mildly, rolled out uh, on Friday, but we're also always working with countries around the world on the question of sanctions enforcement. Uh, That is to say, not new sanctions, but working with Uh, Allies and partners to see to it that we are all um, enforcing the sanctions that uh, we have collectively put on the books. In some cases, we're doing that to make sure that there's not overcompliance, especially when it comes to uh, the flow of humanitarian goods and humanitarian services, and we've been very clear about that when it comes to uh, fuel and fertilizer – excuse me, food and fertilizer uh, emanating. Uh, from Russia. Uh, But in some cases, we are uh, working on sanctions enforcement to make sure that everyone is living up to the commitments uh, that we have made using our domestic authorities uh, or that blocks of countries uh, have uh, made collectively.
1: State Department spokesman Ned Price earlier today. And where does U.S. support for Ukraine leave U.S. military readiness in the Pacific? That was the question posed today to Army Pacific Commanding General Charles Flynn during a conversation at the American Enterprise Institute.
9: On a scale of, say, one to 10, particularly you, General Flynn, how concerned are you that what is needed to help continue to decimate the Russian threat by the Ukrainian military might impede our ability to assist regional allies in Asia?
5: Yeah, well, um, I have, our forces are ready, so I don't have a readiness concern. And if I tie together the previous question, um, the other thing I think that's a lesson that I think is important for our forces uh, being ready and being forward is um as you're seeing in europe our our weapons work compared to some other countries and there's confidence in the region about our systems javelin high mars stinger you name it so again i think that our positioning forward through the ways that i was describing creates conditions for operational endurance and it increases the confidence of our allies and partners and in our interoperability so um, you know, the Secretary and, uh, and I and the Chief, we've had a number of conversations. They're continuing to go on about uh, prioritization. It's a challenge across uh, the world uh, because of the global commitments, and that's particularly true, I think, for the Army. I, I can't speak for the other services, but I would just tell you that uh, the three ways that I was describing through a training center in the region, uh, pathways, you know, again, if you think back to how we got into the particular stance that we are in Europe today, they have a training center in Europe. They had Operation Atlantic Resolve, they had EDI. That, that just didn't happen overnight. It happened over the span of about five to seven years. Um, and so that staying power that the secretary was talking about is what we seek. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we can stay forward, and, and to your point, Mackenzie, about Dr. Ratner's comment, 23 is a really important year because the payload of exercises in pathways is really at its zenith here in 23 because it's a talisman saber year. We have PAC Century, which is a JTF certification for the TJFLIC, my command, and also uh, Pacific Fleet as the uh, TJFMIC. Um, and we're gonna have uh, upwards of 20,000 forces west of the International Dateline joint forces, and then uh, a bulk of those are uh, between six, uh, anywhere between six and 9,000 for Army forces west. So I think this is an important year to get in position, create enduring advantage, um, and build out those three ways that I was talking about. And so um, we're ready to do that, and our forces are ready today to be able to respond if need be in the event that something goes in the direction we don't want it to go.
1: U.S. Army Pacific Commanding General Charles Flynn speaking earlier today at the American Enterprise Institute. You can find all of these events in their entirety at C-SPAN.org. Michigan Democratic Representative Elisa Slotkin has announced she is running for Senate in 2024. She is the first high-profile candidate to jump into the race to replace incumbent Democrat Debbie Stabenow, who said she is retiring. Representative Slotkin is a 46 year old former CIA intelligence officer. She handily won a third term in office in November. Here's a part of her announcement video.
10: For me, Michigan is where it all started. No matter where I've gone in my life, no matter who I've met, nothing is more important to me than this place. My call to public service started on 9 11. It was my second day of grad school in New York City, and by the time the smoke cleared, I knew I wanted a career in public service, protecting my country. I was recruited by the CIA to be a Middle East analyst and sent overseas to do three tours in Iraq alongside our military. I came back to work in the White House under two presidents, one Republican and one Democrat. But no matter what crises I've lived through, nothing Tested me more than when my mom was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. And she didn't have health insurance. She had let it lapse after many years of being gouged by the insurance companies because she happened to have a pre existing condition. It was like a grenade went off in our lives. I took a leave of absence, came home to Michigan, and the same week and the same month that we're desperately trying to get her life saving care was the same week and the same month that we filled out the paperwork for her to declare bankruptcy. We lost her in 2011, but her enduring gift to me was the way the community came together for us, friends, family, strangers, in our hour of crisis.
1: Part of the campaign announcement video from Representative Elisa Slotkin. The race is is expected to be a battleground. Republicans see Michigan as a pickup opportunity, although the state hasn't had a Republican in the Senate since 2001. Finally today, Oklahoma Republican James Lankford read George Washington's farewell address on the Senate floor. It's an annual Senate tradition that began on Washington's birthday in 1896. Among the senators who have read it, Henry Cabot Lodge in 1937, Hubert Humphrey in 1956, Carol Moseley Braun read it in 1994, and last year, Patrick Leahy read it. Here's part of the address with Senator Lankford. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political
12: prosperity, religion, and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, Ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us, with caution, indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that
1: national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford reading part of George Washington's farewell address on the Senate floor. You can see the entire speech at c and on the C-SPAN Now video app. That's also where you can find this program as a podcast. You can also find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like more on the stories that are shaping Washington, subscribe to C-SPAN's evening newsletter, word for word. Just go to dot forward slash connect to subscribe. I'm Gary Sterkoff. Thanks a lot for listening today to Washington Today.